Hi, I'm Dave Reinersman. Welcome to the Marvels of Science, a podcast about the science and tech of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Usually. All your favorite heroes and villains from Captain America and Vision to Thanos and Loki. Speaking of these more philosophical members of our cast, today's topic is the philosophy of the MCU. Here with me to wax philosophical about some comic book movies is Ross P. Cameron, our science uh, philosophy expert today. Ross is a professor in and director of the undergraduate program of Metaphysics, Logic, and Philosophy of Mathematics at the University of Virginia's Corcoran Department of Philosophy. Welcome to the podcast, Ross. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And our color commentator is Sarah Rice Scott, a friend of mine here in D.C., who is a barista, tailor, and amateur philosopher. Thanks for coming on, Sarah Rice. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Before we get started, I want to address the obvious. Yes, this is a science-based podcast, physics, biology, chemistry, etc. And there's nothing to stop us talking about the social sciences either, like the first episode in this season about Tony Stark's PTSD, or later episodes about the cultural impact of Black Panther, depending on getting a guest. But philosophy, this is straight up not a branch of science. Despite not relying on empirical evidence or testable hypotheses in the traditional sense, philosophy can teach us things about the way we interact with the world and our place in it, so close enough for me. And, you know, my podcast, my rules. So on with the show. In the final episode of the MCU show WandaVision, Vision and not Vision have a discussion about the ship of Theseus, giving us, I think, our first explicit mention of a philosophical thought experiment. We'll talk about that more later, but it's important to point out that we've had plenty of philosophical debates and discussions throughout the MCU, not to mention the philosophies underpinning the actions of the characters. Sarah Rice, I want to see what you think about this. Here's my little theory of character decision in the MCU. The characters of the MCU are maybe best defined by their moral ambiguity, their inconsistency, and their willingness to sacrifice their ethics in order to do what they think is right in the moment. If we're being charitable and not just chalking this up to the same amount of inconsistency in writers and directors, and probably the higher importance they place on a blockbuster story rather than, you know, a consistent moral framework for their characters, we could say this is pretty accurate to the human experience because that's probably how most people live their lives not like searching for an ethical framework to tell them what to do but evaluating each set of circumstances they're in and then acting accordingly sort of adjusting their philosophy to fit the moment what do you think is that probably the way most people work or am i just making stuff up without any evidence to back it up i mean i'm definitely doing that but i mean i'm guessing i'm asking if you agree with the stuff i made up i agree but coming from a fundamentalist evangelical background I would say that the level of nuance is often lost on that community. So my personal ability to recognize gray areas and inconsistencies and complexities didn't come until later in life. Ross, this is a general question first, though. Maybe harder than a specific one come to think of it. But what is philosophy? I'm asking because I kept getting bogged down when I was writing this in the thick of like various characters' decisions. And that seems like ethics to me, which is maybe a branch or specialty within philosophy. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and the, the question, what is philosophy? I don't have a good answer to that. Actually, one of the things that I love about philosophy is that you can do philosophy about anything. And ethics is one of the traditional branches of philosophy, you know, metaphysics, logic, philosophy of minds. But when you start to ask what unites those different topics, that's very, very hard to say. I mean, you only get nebulous answers. Philosophy is the love of wisdom, the search for truth, but then other subjects love wisdom and search for truth as well. I think what makes 
philosophy. Philosophy is not so much a subject matter, but a way of approaching an issue or a set of issues where you challenge assumptions, take nothing for granted. I mean, there's really the only thing that I think that unites philosophers is the fact that they don't agree on anything. I mean, there's there's literally <laughs> not a single thing that you can take as a point of agreement in a philosophy talk. And so I think that's philosophy. It's the most truculent of disciplines. I think that's actually really similar to what we landed on the other day when we were recording, where we were talking about how do we define science? And what we talked about was how it's a set of tools. It's an approach. It's not, you know, electrons and cell walls. It's the way we approach a problem. Oh, that's just the beauty of social science or humanities and social sciences. <laughs> it reminds me of a, I minored in religion in undergrad. And the first day of one of my religion classes, we talked about what is religion and like nobody can agree on it. And I remember the professor saying, if you're confused right now, that's okay. Like you're supposed to be, there are no hard and fast answers. And even when you get into deeper things like quantum physics, when you get into the physics of the very, very small, every quantum physicist likes to have their Carl Sagan moment and try to be really pithy and you know clever and they all basically say the same thing if you are not confused by quantum physics then you don't really understand what you're talking about yet because even in hard science where they're talking about error margins of like 0.00001% it's all squidgy and weird and isn't as even the hard sciences aren't as hard as they seem as i guess i'm pointing out so i'm getting even more confident about including a philosophy episode in this podcast the world is gray, man. I think you can't separate the hard sciences from philosophy and vice versa. They each inform the other. When you're given an interpretation of a scientific theory, you are building in philosophical assumptions, whether you admit it or not. And I think the best physicists right. do admit it. Einstein was a philosopher as well as a physicist. Great. So I'm glad we're all in agreement that we should do this episode. So let's go. One of the most clear to me, if very brief, philosophical discussions happens in Avengers Infinity War. Sarah, you haven't seen, I think, any of the MCU. So this is going to sound insane. I did learn recently, as in two hours ago, that Black <laughs> Panther is a part of the Marvel universe. He is, yes. And I have seen that. Great. Well, this is weirder than that. Oh. Vision sees destroying the Mind Stone in his head, thereby sacrificing himself to save half the universe as an easy decision to make. Captain America tells him, we don't trade lives. Thanos threatens half the universe. One life cannot stand in the way of defeating him. But it should. We don't trade lives, Vision. Sarius, what do you think about that statement? When is self-sacrifice permissible in your view? I should tell the listeners that I've given you absolutely zero time to prepare for that heavy <laughs> question. That is going to be a theme for this episode, by the way. Off-the-cuff philosophical discussion. And go. Mm, uh, well, I immediately thought of two things. One was Joseph Campbell's, the whole mythology, the hero's journey, like that whole thing. And then I also thought about a lot of religious narratives of that sacrifice, sacrificial lamb, whether it's a lamb or even like Jesus and like the, the Judeo-Christian narrative. Um, what was the question? <laughs> Vision wants to sacrifice himself in order to save half the universe. Captain America tells him we don't trade lives. What do you think about that? Man, I don't know. That's heavy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty heavy movie. See, he has one of the six infinity stones embedded in his forehead. You know what? It's not important. Is this like the Horcruxes? <laughs> uh <laughs> Not even a little bit, no. Oh. Ross, what's the academic philosopher's take on that? Like, I've seen the term deontology crop up in discussions of Cap's philosophy. I don't even know what that is. Right. So, yeah, what we're seeing here on the face of it is a clash between consequentialist reasoning and deontological reasoning. So the consequentialist thinks that the morally right thing to do 
is the, just the thing that brings about the best consequences. So one example of that is utilitarianism. You, you ought to do the thing that brings the most happiness to most people and the least unhappiness, right? Maximize the amount of happiness that your actions cause in the world. And the deontologist says, no, morality is about following a set of rules and you don't get to break the rules even if it would lead to some kind of greater good, right? So there's a sense in which you can see consequentialism as like the ends justifying the means, whatever brings about the best outcome, that's the thing that you ought to do. And the deontologist says, no, no, it's, it's about obeying the moral law. So you can see vision as making the kind of consequentialist argument. What's one life against uh, literally half of all the lives that there are? Nothing in, in the balance, right? So he, he sees it as obvious he should sacrifice himself for the greater good. But Captain America, right, we don't trade lives. He's more deontologist. He's thinking, no, look, there's a moral law against taking a life. And you don't get to break that moral law, even if you think that there's going to be some better outcome at the end. Mm. So that's the clash of moral arguments there. One sort of conundrum for the consequentialist is how does Vision even know that that would lead to the best outcome? Right? I mean, maybe Vision's sacrifice would lead to an even worse outcome. And who knows? Maybe the stone would be necessary in the future to save all the lives in the universe. And keeping it around is only going to lose half of them. So who knows? It is worth pointing out that that's exactly what happens. Is Eventually, they say, it's time we do it. We kill Vision. Spoilers, by the way, for a five-year-old movie. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Scarlet Witch kills Vision. Thanos undoes it, kills him again, and takes it anyway. And then kills half the universe. So it's a fair point. You can't tell the future. Yeah. This also brings to mind another Cap-centered speech um, given by Sharon Carter in Captain America Civil War. It's worth pointing out there's a very similar speech in the comics given by Captain America instead of the MCU's version, which is given to Captain America. But she says, Compromise where you can. But where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move. It is your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say, no, you move. Sarah Rice, what's your take there? If you know you're right, but everyone disagrees with you, what do you do? Oh, man. It's so gray. Because, like, what if it's something that's inconsequential? You know, like, the steak is overdone. (laughs) You know? And everyone around you says, that's a perfectly done steak. And you say, you know what? No, I'm going to plant myself like a tree because Captain America told me to. Because some things aren't worth it, you know? And that's not worth it. It's not worth the fight. Some some things are worth planting the tree. It's so complex. It's so gray. Does that answer the question? No. Who knows? I don't know. It's philosophy. I think having a discussion answers the question. That's uh, maybe not going to give me an A in an exam in Ross's class. But Ross, is it, does this concept of the certainty of conviction fit into the case we're building for Cap? Cap needed help. So. Cap? Captain America. Captain Cap. It's what we call him yeah well i mean cap is certainly a man of conviction but you know notice the way you put the question right you said if you know you're right do you stand firm and maybe you do but how could you know right i mean this is not uh when we're working in ethics here we're not talking about something where you can perform an experiment and get the result so you might have a conviction that you're right and maybe this will shine well with sarah's uh fundamentalist upbringing you can, <laughs> that conviction might be completely wrong yeah right you can have a conviction that's a matter of your own personal psychological makeup that by itself doesn't tell you that you're in fact right maybe the fact that everyone else is telling you you're wrong is good evidence that you are wrong maybe you are right maybe you're the lone person that sees the moral truth but you don't have any way to verify that question we're all going on our own moral reasoning here learning from one another as we can of course part of learning 
from one another is when everyone else tells you you're wrong, you at least consider that you are wrong. <laughs> right, yeah. Like the the power of self-reflection is yeah, you know, exactly, yeah. valuable. Even peer pressure. Yeah, sometimes that's a good thing. Like I think of myself, my freshman in college, me, when I said some really outrageous things. Looking back, I'm so grateful to have had friends who push back on that and like challenge me. Let's do a quick <clears throat> swing by Spider-Man's overriding philosophy, with great power comes great responsibility, or in the MCU, because Spider-Man's 15 at this point and not that pithy. Look, when you can do the things that I can, but you don't, and then the bad things happen, they happen because of you. SRS, what are your thoughts about the relationship between power and responsibility? I've also, I saw a Spider-Man movie at some point. <laughs> One thing that jumps out is like, it's awfully self-centered to think that, oh, the something bad happened because I didn't do anything. Like, what if something is just absolutely out of your control, you know, and it doesn't matter yeah. if you try? <laughs> That's very sad. So with great power comes great responsibility. I mean, like, certainly that's true. If 2016 to 2020 was any indication, hmm. there's a complete shirking of responsibility with that great power. And here we are. When I brought up this quote in the Spider-Man episode, Emily Osterhus brought up people like Jeff Bezos mm. and the very wealthy of the world. Mm. It's said in the context, obviously, of superpowers. In Spider-Man's original story, a guy brushes by him that usually has just committed some crime. He declines to help. And that same guy then goes and kills his uncle, mm. coincidentally. And this guilt pushes him toward a life of superheroism. I took what was basically a political philosophy course about 100 years ago. And we talked about Peter Singer's drowning child analogy, which has helped probably shape some of my views on international development. Uh, Ross, are you familiar with that? Can you walk us through that? Yeah, so Peter Singer is a consequentialist. He's a utilitarian, like we were talking about before. He thinks that what you ought to do is whatever will bring about uh, the most happiness. It's all about the outcome. Mm. So, I mean, in effect, if you walk by someone who's drowning and you're the only person who can save them and you don't, according to Singer, that is morally equivalent to finding someone who's not drowning and holding their head under the water until they do, right? Either way, a life is lost as a result of your action or inaction. And the difference between action and inaction doesn't morally matter for the consequentialist, because all that matters is what was brought about as a result of what you did. And one objection that sometimes philosophers make against consequentialism is that it is too demanding morally. Mm. And Peter Singer embraces this conclusion. If he's right about the drowning person case, then we are all basically guilty of that all the time why are we wasting our time right now and join ourselves in this podcast rather than going off to build wells somewhere where they don't have water we could all be doing more than we are the consequentialist is right we're all violating the moral duty all the time because we're not completely sacrificing our own interests for the greater good of others and Oof. that seems to be what Spider-Man's getting, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, but, but why? What if Peter Parker just wants to spend his time taking his photographs, right? Why doesn't he get to do that? I and mean, then in the superhero world, it seems to be that getting powers brings in this unique responsibility, but that shouldn't be the case. If it's true for Spider-Man, it's true for us all. You know, you talked about Jeff Bezos, but as far as the world is concerned, you know, we're all rich compared to the the world we're all way richer than the global poor so we should all be doing whatever we can to transfer all our wealth to them if it's true that with great power comes great responsibility we are all terrible people all the time 
Well, that's a happy thought. Which definitely, <laughs> which definitely feeds like a total depravity <laughs> theology. <laughs> yeah, it's a slippery slope because I see this as someone who works in customer service. Like I see coworkers just completely you're like you're sacrificing yourself for someone else's comfort. And you're like, you're completely compromising your own dignity so that you can make this customer happy. And like this customer's being a jerk. And like, mm-hmm. since I heard it like several months ago or a year ago, don't set yourself on fire to keep someone else warm. Yeah, the way we talked about it in this political class was there is an obligation to help that child. Well, what if you're wearing a very expensive suit? Well, that's not morally equivalent to that kid's life. So yeah, jump in and help the child. If there's a property line that doesn't change anything if there's a border that doesn't change anything like it doesn't change the equation until you begin to raise the possibility of risking something of moral equivalence i.e your life or maybe life and limb if you want to go that far but until you get to that point like if you're gonna be late for a job interview that could drastically improve your life well that one's gonna lose their life so you sort of have an obligation so what if you don't fulfill that obligation is it the same like peter singer would say is it the same as drowning some other child? And that seems like a, a second step that he took, where I feel comfortable saying, if you walk past a drowning child and you don't help, that's not good, at least. And then it goes farther, where a, a common exercise people use in international development context is saying, what about a child with low food security in, let's say, the Central African Republic? You know they exist, and this is what we are just talking about. Why aren't you sending them some of your money? Why aren't you trying to help them? And... The answer is because it's very hard. And if you redistribute all income perfectly equally around the world, you're just going to make everybody mostly unhappy. So I'm not even sure if the utilitarians would like that. That's right. It's perfectly compatible with utilitarianism that there is this duty on each of us that if we all fulfilled wouldn't be good, right? Because as you say, if you completely redistribute the world's wealth equally, no one's actually left with all that much. But it's compatible with, it's not true that we ought to redistribute everything equally. We're saying that, well, each individual ought to redistribute whatever they can of their wealth. That's a kind of odd scenario, but it, it might be true. The one thing you said is only if there's a sort of equal moral sacrifice that you shouldn't sort of jump in and save the child. You don't get off the hook just because you don't want to get your suit wet. But I do think it's an interesting question why it would only be something of moral worth that could balance the scales. What about things of ethic worth? Because I can only um, save a life if I destroy the Sistine Chapel. I think most of us want to say destroy the Sistine Chapel and save the life. But why? They're bo- they both have value. They're just different kinds of value. One's moral value and one's aesthetic. And I think that's a really tough question. Why is it that moral weight seems to have this trumping effect? It can't be overridden by even any amount of, say, aesthetic value. It's interesting because it's a thing that we take as sort of for granted. Like, yeah, a human life is worth more than the Sistine Chapel. And you ask why, then you say, because it is. Yeah. But also, like, who's human life? Like, what if it's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break him out, but Hitler... What if it's sure. Hitler or the Sistine Chapel? I'm picking the Sistine Chapel. I'll take the Sistine Chapel, yep. We're doing this on the internet. That's Godwin's Law. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. What I find very different about philosophy and some of the hard sciences you usually talk about is there's no answer at the end of this. There's right. no multiple choice question at the end of this discussion. And for a lot of that's that's reducing science to overly simplistic basis too but it's more common to get you know how many valence electrons and so on or whatever in that same movie actually where spider-man sort of bumbles through his philosophy tony stark comes out swinging the un wants to put all the superpowered individuals and also like the dudes that just wear wings under their auspices steve captain america doesn't want to put this power into the hands of people Wait. with political agendas that change yeah 
Captain America's name is Steve. Steve Rogers. Okay. Yep. All right. That's fine. <laughs> and Tony, Iron Man, doesn't want the Avengers to be like cowboys deciding what's right and wrong for the world. He wants to have some oversight. He's going through some stuff. He's got some guilt. And he sees the side of the government in this case. In essence, Tony is willing to give up some of his freedom to choose and that same freedom for the rest of their team and people like them in order to protect the general public. Sarah Rice, I'd like you to take a position on the biggest difference of opinion among all MCU fans since is Star-Lord to blame for Thanos winning? Team Cap or Team Iron Man? Should the Avengers have oversight? Okay, wait. I'm still hung up on the... His name is Steve. Um, (laughs) They all have names like that. Bruce and Steve and... I mean, Bruce is fine because it's like Bruce, you know? Like, Bruce. (laughs) Steve... I don't know. Okay, so can you... Sorry. Yeah, there's all these super-powered people running around now. It's a few years into the MCU. The UN wants to put them under their control, basically. Make them sort of a a UN-based team so that when they see a thing happening that's going the way it shouldn't, they can send them in. And Captain America's point is, well, what if they send us somewhere we don't think we should go? What if they won't send us somewhere where we think we should go, where we can help, and they're not letting us because of some political reason? And Tony says, we can't just decide these things ourselves. And Cap says, why not? Somebody's going to decide these things. Why not us? Why somebody else? And that's basically the crux of the issue between Team Cap and Team Iron Man in Captain America Civil War. It's a civil war among the heroes uh-huh. who wind up having a fist fight in a parking lot. You want me to choose a side here? Choose a side. Every oh, MCU, MCU fan has chosen a side. That's probably not true. <laughs> and now that you've seen one of the movies and talked about a couple others, <laughs> time to pick. Oh, man. But, I mean, is is the UN like an efficient organization? Like, can we... I mean, that's an easy, solid no. But, okay. <laughs> I, um... I don't know, because this also feels like big government versus not. I want to I wanna believe that the big organization has our best interests in mind, but I know that bureaucracies are maintainers of the status quo. I, I don't... I, are you really going to make me choose? I mean, you don't have to. Okay. I can't make you do anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like playing both sides on this a little bit, because in real life, if there were a team of people that could fly and shoot lasers out of their faces, I want somebody else in control of them because that's terrifying. Yeah. But because point. the movie shows us that Steve Rogers is a good guy and Thor is a good guy and so on. Well, Thor is not under this. He's an alien. Oh, I thought he's Norwegian. His culture influenced Norse mythology. Oh is where their mythology comes from, these aliens with superpowers. That's the MCU, not real life. I'm not crazy. <laughs> um, just, just to clarify, I don't actually believe that. But since I know that like Tony Stark and Steve Rogers and all these people have actual good interests at heart, and I see what they're trying to do, I trust them more than the faceless UN who we don't see in the movie. Mm. But in real life, mm-hmm. a guy like Tony Stark running around, if Jeff Bezos had an Iron Man suit, I'd be terrified of him. Yeah, I don't trust that guy. Right, and Tony Stark is essentially Jeff Bezos who sold weapons and then mm. turned into a good guy with a suit. But that's in real life terrifying. In the movies, I don't know. Ross, what's the philosophical bent on here? For me, I was trying to lead in a direction where Tony is willing to give up some freedom for some protection. Where does that fit in in a in a in a philosophy class? Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, Tony is is your arch consequentialist in the MCU, right? He'll do whatever for the greater good, and this is an instance of that. What are some measly freedoms for the overall security of the world? And in political terms, I think uh, 
talking about serves, right? So that this is a kind of small government versus big government thing. You can see CAF as a kind of libertarian response here. We don't need this oversight. We don't want it. Who's meant to be more qualified than I am to decide uh, how to use my powers? And Tony is very unlibertarian here. Tony wants oversight and presumably elected oversight. I kind of agree with what you were suggesting that uh, honestly both options are just terrifying there we go think of tony running around without oversight there's a great line in iron man one where tony stark says i think to congress i have successfully privatized world peace mm -hmm. and that's how he sees it and that's kind of right that's his project but do we want world peace to be privatized so in the hand of his interest no one that is responsible to any kind of common democratic opinion but what's the alternative the alternative is oversight we know how governments work of course what, what's going to happen if america has all these superheroes off we go right to um, right <laughs> create our brand new empire I and mean, of course that's what would happen and in the films that's what very almost happens right that's the second captain america film where you find out right. that good government was bad government all along right that shield was hydra yeah i would be terrified of either option you know these are fantastic stories but if there really were superheroes the only rational response is terror okay i feel very validated now <laughs> <laughs> my last one i want to bring up is tony stark's final act spoilers again sarah Ice. <laughs> cover my ears i think utilitarianism and i use the word utilitarianism here because i had never heard the word consequentialism before 36 minutes ago mm -hmm. um but i think it crops up in his final act he commits this incredible act of violence at the end of avengers endgame it ultimately saves lives perhaps at this point every life in the universe not just half of them but he still does use an incredibly powerful weapon of mass destruction to kill an entire army of people many of whom we can suspect or we've explicitly seen are not there because they agree with Thanos's plan of incredible destruction, but because they're coerced into fighting for him. So how do we justify this? Sarah Rice, this feels like the trolley problem to me. <laughs> it does. Classic. Yeah. You have a switch, or in this case, an infinity gauntlet that can kill <laughs> one person in order to save five others. If you do nothing, the trolley kills five people. If you throw the switch, you kill one person. Do you throw the switch? I think, I don't know, it was a perfectly reasonable yeah. response, by the way. It, it reminds me of, I mean, dropping the, the bomb, too, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The justification was we're going to, you know, end the war and save all these people, but yet we dropped the bomb. Yeah, in that particular case, there are a lot of people with um, various numbers on either side saying, well, it would have cost as many lives to invade the normal right. way or it wouldn't have, whatever. Right. I very rarely see someone saying, what if we just film it blowing up an uninhabited island and say, we don't want to do this to Tokyo, but we will if you don't stop. Nobody thought of that one, apparently. Yeah, that would have been a good move. So if you've got an actual trolley in front of you, or uh -huh. if you have an infinity gauntlet that will kill one person but save the universe... What do you think? I don't know. Who's the one person? In this case, it was him. Himself? Tony dies, but he also kills an entire army of people. But this army is trying to destroy the entire universe. Sort of. Sort of. <laughs> it's a little more complicated than that, but that's the basics. I mean, oh man, I don't know. It's easy to sit and think and debate or whatever, but they're also punching and flying around at the moment. And he's like, oh, I have a way to end the fight. Grabs it and does it. Yeah. You know I'm a sensitive person and this is going to keep me up for weeks now. <laughs> I would highly recommend watching Avengers Endgame after you watch 22 other movies. But um... <laughs> I, I don't love you the same way that your wife does, Dave. <laughs> so I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> 
Ross, is Tony snapping or SRS throwing the switch? Is that the key here? Taking the action, taking an active role in the situation that makes this a hard problem? I feel like if somebody asked, all things being equal, is one death or five deaths more preferable? We'd probably say, yeah, I suppose one death is more preferable than five. That makes sense. But when you have to cause the one death to save the five, that's when it changes for a lot of people, right? I think. Yes. Also, I think the trolley problem case and the you know, big fight at the end of end game case are a little bit different, partly because in the trolley problem case, it's just a numbers game. Everyone mm-hmm. in the trolley problem is meant to be innocent. Mm-hmm. You can see me doing scare quotes there, but, you know, as innocent as anyone else, right? There's no sure. meant to be moral weight to pick one over another. And part of it does come down to, well, are you doing something wrong by being the cause of someone's death rather than being the one who, in a sense, let it happen? And I think a, a different set of considerations are facing Tony because we have no idea about the numbers. We have no idea how many people are in these relative armies. I think they are, Tony's really weighing up two choices and each of them are morally monstrous. There's no getting around that, right? You either let this rampaging army destroy everything you love or you kill this army who are, as you say, right, <laughs> largely consistent of people, creatures that are enslaved into it they're not like signing up for fantasy's ideology or anything like that they're not like true believers of the cause they've just been coerced into this so i think you know what do we do when we're faced with two options each of which is horrendous and i think that's a really hard question you know to go back to something we were talking about earlier i don't think most of us attempt to answer the question by deploying a moral theory Right? We don't sit and think, well, what does deontology tell me to do here? What does consequentialism tell me to do mm. here? We try and do the best we can in horrible circumstances. And maybe when you're faced with two genuinely horrific moral options, maybe there is no unique answer to what one ought to do. Right? I mean, there doesn't always have to be an answer. You know, morality doesn't need to be like maths, where you can either prove this or disprove it. In fact, mathematicians are going to write in and say that that's not always math either. But look, I know, I know. Okay? Now I'm thinking of Brene Brown or Glennon Doyle and the concept of like charitable assumptions, assuming that people are doing their best. I want to assume that I would do my best, make the best decision, because there's not one, it's not black or white. You know, but like knowing myself and knowing my intuition, can I trust my intuition? The power of the gut instinct, trust those. I mean, not everybody is obviously in touch and with their feelings as I am. You know what I mean? Hope that people have a connection with their own intuition and gut. Thinking about putting different people in those shoes made me think, what if Captain America had been closer with his deontological view saying, you know, you can't kill people, although he's a soldier. He shoots a bunch of people. But generally speaking, he doesn't like the idea. Maybe his hesitation in doing it. Maybe it's good we got the consequentialist to put the glove on and not Captain America, who might have hemmed and hawed for a moment to try to fit it into his moral picture. Yeah, maybe. And then, you know, got knocked in the head. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe. Or maybe Cap would have found a better solution. Right. I mean, Tony does have the Infinity Gauntlet. Why exactly did they have to kill them all? Why couldn't they send them all to their own little pocket dimension where they could rampage to their heart's content and not actually kill anyone? <laughs> um, sure. Send them to an ice cream shop and they'll be happy forever. Like the Infinity Gauntlet is meant to be- make you basically omnipotent. Why yeah. was Tony's first thought, ah, okay, I shall kill so them all? So this feels like a false choice then. <laughs> yeah, it is not an either or. It's not that the Switch only does two things. The Infinity Gauntlet is made up of things that control the fabric of the universe, and he literally could have done anything in that moment. Oh, but well. once, do, using it once for somebody as human as Tony would kill him, and it, well, did. Oh. So he's got one shot. 
Mm-hmm. And you had three seconds to think about it. I mean, ice cream's always on the forefront of my mind, so I don't know why you didn't <laughs> go with that option. Baskin Robbins always finds out, bro. Baskin Robbins don't play. So the trolley problem is, do you kill one person, do you kill five, or do you get ice cream? That's way easier. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Next up, we have a segment in the show called, hmm, technically, Sarah Rice and I are going <laughs> to, like that, Sarah Rice and I are going to keep quiet for two or three minutes as Ross gives us some nuance or details on anything related even tangentially to the topic. Ross? You have the floor. Okay, well, I guess I want to bring up two things, because we've talked a lot about ethical issues that arise in the MCU, and that's been a lot of fun. But I'm a metaphysician. I'm not a moral philosopher. So I want to talk about two metaphysical issues that arise in the MCU. So the first is time travel. So we've been talking about Avengers Endgame. And all I really want to say is that it makes no sense. Like, it's a fun film, but it makes no sense at all. The time travel absolutely doesn't work. So we start off, Thanos in the previous Avengers film has killed literally half of all living things. And so we're five years after the fact, half the people are gone. And Ant-Man comes back and says, well, I think we can travel in time. Then they hatch this plan. They're going to go back, get the Infinity Stones, bring them back to this time five years after the snap, do another snap to bring everyone back. Hey, presto. And then uh, War Machine asks the obvious question, why if we can go back in time, why not just go find baby Thanos and kill him? And Hulk says, this is intelligent Hulk, right? So Hulk's got all the intelligence of Banner. Hulk says, that's not how it works. Here's the quote. If you travel to the past, that past becomes your future and your former present becomes the past, which can't now be changed by your new future. And that sounds like maybe a bit of gobbledygook, but it actually makes really good sense. One model of time travel says well you can't change the past right because if you go back to before thanos did the snap you're still in the historical sequence events where that snap happens now all you've done is insert yourself in there earlier so you can be a causal influence on those events but those events are still part and parcel of the historical sequence so there's nothing you can do that's going to undo that this is the grandfather paradox if you go back in time for your grandfather, try and kill him, you're going to fail because you know that your grandfather didn't die. He wasn't killed by you. So what happens? You Maybe you slip in a banana peel and you can't get to him. Maybe they, you pull the trigger, but the gun fires blanks. Who knows? But you know that you're not going to kill your grandfather when he's a child because you already know that your grandfather did not die as a child. So that looks all good. It looks like we're going to have this consistent time travel story, but then it's all undone because they do go back and change the past. All this stuff starts to change. Change. Early Nebula meets her later self. Loki, who was originally captured, goes free. All this stuff starts to change. At that point, they should learn that they can change the past. So they should go and try and kill baby Thanos. Now, there's a possible explanation, which is actually hinted at in the film, which is that they're not really traveling back and changing their own timeline, but rather when they make these changes, they're creating alternative timelines. So there's there's an original timeline with a snap happened and no one ever comes back but there's alternate possibilities but that doesn't fit in with the film either because (laughs) at the very end steve rogers captain america goes back in time to return all the infinity stones to their original locations and he decides not to come back he stays with his lost love peggy carter and lives a life with her but then he ages and then meets his friends back in the original present but he wouldn't do that 
that wouldn't happen if it was jumping timelines. It wouldn't be that present. It would be the future of the new timeline. So there's no way. Here's how time travel works in the MCU. It works for whatever the story needs at a particular moment. And uh, it makes no sense. Nevertheless, do I cry when all the heroes come back? Yes, I do. <laughs> the very, very quick next metaphysics gives the thesis's ship that you mentioned right at the start. So vision and alternate vision have this discussion about which one is the real vision. And they talk about the thesis's ship thought experiment. And the reason I want to well actually this one is that it's not really thesis's ship that they're talking about. In thesis's ship, what happens is you take the ship apart gradually, like replace one plank of wood, replace another plank of wood, replace another plank of wood. But you keep all the original planks and then you, you rebuild a ship out of those that then is qualitatively identical to the original ship. And now you've got two ships that both look like Thesis' ship, so which is the real one? But that's trading on the idea that you can undergo gradual changes and remain the same thing, right? You can get a haircut and remain the same person, cut your nails, remain the same person, right? So then what happens if you keep all the matter and make another you? But there's nothing like that gradual change that happens in the case of vision. What we've got there is just Wanda creates a new vision and the original vision is reactivated. So now there's two visions, but neither of them is a result of some like gradual process of change from the original. It's just a case of duplication. So it's what in philosophy we'd call a fission case rather than a thesis's ship case. The reason why we get that metaphysical puzzle in the case of vision is that what seems important to a person, and I think vision is a person, what's important to a person is not anything to do with the matter that makes them up. It's the psychology, it's the personality, the beliefs, the memories. And here we've got two things that each have the same psychological connection back to the original vision. So they each have equal claim to be the original, and yet they can't both be identical to the original because they're not identical to one another. They are different. And that's a metaphysical puzzle. It's related to thesis's ship in some ways, but it's also different. So that's my that's my classic well, actually. <laughs> it got it kind of right, but I need to be predicting, uh, pick on the details there. Excellent. Sarah, so close us out. What are your final philosophical thoughts? Well, one, we need a spinoff podcast about the metaphysics of Back to the Future. <laughs> Actually, right after that line that Russ quoted about Hulk saying, your future becomes your past and so on, uh, Paul Rudd says, So Back to the Future is a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> I love philosophy in that it is a toolbox, and it's nice to have that toolbox, and it's okay to not know. And coming from an upbringing where everything was black and white and you needed to have an answer, it's just so refreshing to have a framework that is so flexible and not in a way that's like i'm trying to slip out of something but in a way that's really thoughtful and more open to nuance and complexity i want to be clear as always that i love these movies scientific accuracy or philosophical accuracy for that matter is not a necessary component for good storytelling in fact sometimes it gets in the way i want to thank my guests sarah rice scott and ross cameron for being on the podcast thanks for listening and cross your fingers there's an episode 14 that's all for this episode. Thanks once again to my guests, Ross Cameron and Sarah Rice Scott. The way they brought such care to their analysis and discussion means a lot to me. I'm going to ask you a favor during the credits now. Share this podcast with one friend you think would like it. And if you want to go a step further, I'll ask what every small podcast asks to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. If you want to go nuts, support the podcast directly at patreon.com slash marvelsofscience. 
MCU audio clips were taken from Captain America Civil War, Avengers Infinity War, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Iron Man 2, Ant-Man, and Avengers Endgame, and all used entirely without permission. The music is a song called On Tiptoe from Purple Planet Music. That song and more royalty-free music can be found at purple-planet.com. Check out more info about each episode and its guests, including upcoming episodes, at davereinersman.com slash marvelsofscience. And now find me on Twitter at marvelsoscience, not of O. Thanks for listening. Last thing. We recorded this about a month or so ago, and last week, Sarah Rice was hit by a car while biking. She was lucky and wearing a helmet, so she's recovering well. But in addition to broadcasting to her some well wishes, I wanted to remind all cyclists to wear your helmet every single time you get on your bike. Remind all drivers to always be on the lookout for cyclists. And remind everybody else to advocate for safer bike laws and infrastructure in your city. Get well soon, Sarah Rice.